and we want to welcome our old friend and honored guest, Ira Fistel. Ira, the telephone is yours. Welcome and oh, Happy well, New Year. Thank you. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. Um, the way I wanted to start out tonight was with a question for all of you guys who are listening. Anybody you know who wants to speak up, uh, answer please. How did you feel when you read the last part of this book? Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Do you have any feelings? <laughs> Give your name and answer it, please. Well, this is Sherry. It's been a while, but I, I seem to remember feeling kind of disappointed because, if I remember right, it seemed like Merlin had more of a victory. Yeah. Uh-huh. Disappointed. That, that's all right. Um, any other feelings from anybody else? Confusing at times. It was a hard read. Yeah. Um, puzzling. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, anybody feel that they didn't understand what was going on? Sometimes, but what about the rest of you ladies, Margaret and anybody else? Yeah, it, it was confusing and sort of disappointing in some way I can't quite describe. Uh-huh. Did you feel that you didn't quite understand it? You didn't, you wondered what was going on? Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I think he wasn't organized in his writing or he got lost Not on this book. Uh, symmetry, what do you mean by that? Well, like the first 11 chapters, I guess you could, you're going to tell me he did, and then 11 through 38, it, was, it just could have been, wasn't as tight, it seemed like to me. Oh. You know, three parts. <laughs> yeah, it's a three-part structure, but it's not yeah. like Huckleberry Finn, where no, everything is, right. is completely, right. um, completely comparable and in, in uh, I would say, in sync. Uh, that's very true. The book is not uh, the masterpiece of structure that Huckleberry Finn is. But I asked the reason. I asked the question about how did you feel, because I think that the vast majority of people who get through the book, and not everybody gets through it. A lot of people start it and give up along about uh, the middle of the second part, because it, it's getting boring. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere, and then come all those horrors of that last part of the second part, and. It's, you get to the left the third part, and you don't know what to expect, and then uh, you find somehow you don't really think you understand what's going on. And I think there are reasons for all that. You know, it's not you. <laughs> People have been feeling this way about the book ever since it was first published. And I think there's a reason for it. Um, I'm glad to hear that, that I got exactly the reaction, re reaction rather that I thought I'd get and that I wanted to get because I'm going to make some comments about these last six chapters or so, which may bring them into some focus for you. Okay? We start with Chapter 39, right? We finished uh, Chapter 38 with the rescue of the 500 knights on bicycles coming down the road to sweep the Yankee and the king and the others off the scaffold, and uh, the, the people are flabbergasted. And the king says, now you'll know who's the real king. You know, it's, it's really me. I am King Arthur. Uh, it's a triumph. And it's a comic triumph. And it comes at the end of this long string of horrors that goes back uh, to the story of the manor house and the, the murders and the, uh, the, the, the lynching and all the horrible things that go on. All right. The first four words of Chapter 39 are... Home again in Camelot. 
Now, what, is the, what do those four words do for you? What are those four words? How do they make you feel? After all the, the things that have gone on in that last section. They, they made me, Margaret here, they made me feel there was a sort of irony to it, perhaps. It, it was like a little tongue-in-cheek, maybe. Well, I don't know about that. This is um, Sherry. I was thinking of uh, The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. Absolutely. There's no place Very like good. home. It's a relaxing four words, just four little words that relax the tension. It makes you feel good. Home again at Camelot. Everything's going to be okay. Of course, there's where the irony comes in, because everything isn't okay. But uh, those four words are an example of something that Mark Twain does very well, and other authors, of course, also do. Uh, the build-up of tension and the relaxation of tension. And this is the relaxation of tension following on the comic escape, which itself uh, is a way of relaxing the tension of the horrors that went before. But we don't go very far from these four words. In fact, about three lines, and we find in the newspaper a notice of what? Know that the great lord and illustrious knight Sir Sagramor and Ladezurius, having condescended to meet the king's minister, Hank Morgan, the witch's surname, the boss, for satisfaction of offense anciently given, these wilt engage in the lists by Camelot about the fourth hour of the morning of the 16th day of this next succeeding month. The battle will be l'outrance. You know what that means? To the death. Since the offense was of a deadly sort, admitting no composition. In other words, it's going to be a duel to the death between the boss, Hank Morgan, and Sir Sagramore. You know, when was this set up? When, when did we um, first encounter Sir Sagramore? And what was the uh, offense that he took? Uh, go back to Chapter 9. Oh, no. And in Chapter 9, uh, the boss is watching Sir Sagramore and um, Sir Gareth. And Sir Gareth is, is, uh, hits, hits a, uh, a blow to um, Sir Dinadan the humorist. And the boss remarks, I hope to gracious he's killed. He can't stand Sir, Din Sir uh, Dinadan. But by ill luck, before I got half through with the words, Sir Gareth crashed into Sir Sagramore with Azurius and sent him thundering over the horse's crupper and Sir Sagramore caught my remark and thought I meant it for him. Uh, I, I hope he's dead. Well, that's why Sir Sagramore is so angry. And he's been away seeking the Holy Grail for the whole book, from Chapter 9 to Chapter 39. But now he's back, and there's going to be a duel. There's a little bit here that needs to be pointed out. I don't think I'm wrong when I say this. In this little thing, the... Uh, the knowledge, the little announcement in the newspaper, Sir Sagamore to Desirius, having condescended to meet the king's minister, Hank Morgan, the witch's surname, the boss. This is the only time in the entire novel when the name of the Yankee is given in full in one place. I don't think I'm wrong about that. I've looked through it very carefully, and as far as I can figure out, this is the only time ever in the whole novel in which he's called Hank Morgan at one time. He's called Hank a number of times. 
I don't know that he's ever called Morgan, but he, you know, he, the name Morgan is used for him. But I think this is the only time. Now, what's the significance of Hank Morgan? We talked about the name Morgan before. And the names in this book fascinate me, and I've, I've always uh, been bothered by some things about them. Um, remember, who is the boss's right-hand man? Used to be the page boy. Clarence or Winter. Clarence. Clarence, right. And when Clarence is first introduced to us, we don't know his name. His real name is Amyas Le Poulet, the chicken. <laughs> but he's okay. always called by the boss Clarence. And the, the sounds of the boss sounds like he's just picking the name out of the air. He says, now then, Clarence, if that may be your name. Okay. Did Mark Twain just call him Clarence for no reason? And that bothered me. And I went to a library, and I got a book on the meaning of names. And I looked up the name Clarence. You know what it means? No. No. Clear, no. bright, positive uh, looks. You know, Clarence, clear. And that is what Clarence is in the book. His name describes him perfectly. And he becomes the Morgan's right-hand man. And at the end of the book... He actually ends the book. He is the one who writes the last chapter. He comes on in this book the way Huckleberry Finn comes on at the end of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. He takes over the last chapters to a great degree. If you look carefully at chapters 42, 43, 44, they're mostly either about, narrated by, or actually written by Clarence. All right. Now, when I was looking up Clarence, I also said, well, then, what's Hank mean? Anybody know what Hank means? You know, Hank is a diminutive of Henry. In Henry, yeah. Anybody know what Henry means? I was wondering if it meant honor. No, it doesn't mean honor. It means ruler, conqueror, powerful, uh, leader, uh, <laughs> All the things that the Yankee is or wants to be. I don't think this is an accident, folks. I do not believe that Mark Twain just picked a name, picked the name Henry, uh, Hank, and by accident had it come out to mean what the uh, to illustrate the Yankee's character. Any more than I think he picked the name Clarence out of the woodwork uh, to illustrate Clarence's character. This is the kind of thing you've got to be so careful with, because Mark Twain was a genius, and he didn't do things for no reason. So this is just a little note about this uh, use of the name. But there it is, Hank Morgan. So at the same time, you have a name, Morgan, which recalls both Morgan Le Fay, the evil sister of King Arthur, and also regards... Morgan, J.P. Morgan, the financier in the 20th century United States, or late 19th century United States. Okay, the duel. What happens in the duel? Uh, there's a new law that presumably Morgan has had something to do with, although we don't know that, which says that in a duel, any combatant may use any weapon he likes. Did you see that? And what does Morgan use? What's the weapon he chooses? Is it a sword? Is it a lance? What is it? 
Anybody know that one? I don't. I don't know. Lasso. You missed that one. Okay. Oh, it's a lasso. And he lassoes of the night he's gonna and knocks him out of his off his horse with a lasso. He doesn't tell us, however, that he also has two other weapons with him. Two pistols. One in each holster. So he's prepared to fight. Not only prepared to fight fair, so to speak, with the lasso, but he also has two pistols just in case things get rough. But he doesn't tell us about the two pistols before he has to use one of them. This is characteristic of the last part of the Yankee, where things appear that we weren't told about. And this is just one of the, of the incidences where this happens. It happens in a much bigger incidence in a little while, which I'll tell you about. All right. So Hank has the lasso, and Sir Sagamore comes at him with uh, blood in his eye. Who has been casting spells to protect Sir Sagamore? Who do you think? I would think Merlin. Merlin, of course. So this is, yeah. this is seen as not only a duel between a knight and the boss, but actually, more importantly, it's a duel between Merlin and the boss to see who's the greater magician. Because if Sir Sagamore wins with Merlin's aid, Merlin is a greater magician than the boss. And if Morgan wins, then he uh, has Merlin down again. The book is full of the boss's conflict with Merlin. comes up over and over again. And every time, the boss appears to win, except the last time. Now, this brings up a number of questions, but uh, the fact is here that uh, the boss is going to fight with the lasso, and Merlin is fighting with his spells. Okay, Sir Sagramore uh, gets knocked down, and um, after he's knocked down, the boss has to accept a challenge from anybody else who wants to come on the field. And there are about five more knights who challenge him, and then he challenges them all to come at him at once. He has knocked off uh, several of the, uh, the knights by this time. Well, he killed, he killed Sir Sagamore, and he has to kill Sir Sagamore because Merlin steals the lasso after about eight, uh, eight times that uh, Sag has been knocked off his horse or, or missed getting the, the, um, the boss. Uh, Merlin steals the lasso, swipes it under his nose. So he has to use one of his pistols, and he makes the... Uh, move so quickly, waits till Sir Sagamore gets close, and then pulls the pistol out and fires it. Sir Sagamore is dead on the ground, and he's got the pistol back in the holster before anybody sees it. And it seems like he's killed Sir Sagamore by magic. Now, at this point, uh, he is just feeling on top of the world, Morgan is. There's a little quote here. I wished I was just feeling on top of the world. I wished a little hello girl from West Hartford could see me now. Who is he talking about? Who's his girlfriend? Wasn't it back his, his girlfriend? Wasn't it? Didn't he have a girlfriend at the beginning of this? Somewhere? Sure he did. Who was it? What was her name? Mm -hmm. Puss Flanagan. Oh, gee. Puss Flanagan. Okay. Okay. How old is Puss Flanagan? We're not told the first time we meet her but we are told in Chapter 15 that she is 15 years old. Ooh. How old is the boss? It's in uh, the part that we just read tonight. 
He's about the same age as King Arthur, about 40. Hank Morgan, the boss, is 40, and his girlfriend, Puss Flanagan, what, what uh, is her profession, by the way? She's 15 years old. She's a telephone operator. And he likes to call up and say, hello, Central, and hear her voice. Boy, did anybody remember any of this? It's I been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, I know. It's been a while. months since we started this. I do remember yeah. that he's Double married in, back in King Arthur's time, though. Yeah. Does that say that again? He he's married, married Sandy, so it's interesting that he's pining for his girlfriend. Well, he always thinks of his girlfriend. It is interesting. But yeah. plus, the next thing I'm going to tell you is going to shock you, I think. Or maybe it shocked you. Um, Puss Flanagan, when we first meet her, comes from East Hartford. East Hartford is where the boss comes from. He was a, he was a, a boss at the, the arms factory, the Colt Arms Factory in East Hartford, Connecticut. And that's where you would find a working man a boss and where you'd be likely to find a 15-year-old telegraph telephone operator. But what has happened here? He doesn't say she's from East Hartford here. It says she's from West Hartford. Mm. Anybody been to Hartford? Anyone know anything about Hartford? Oh. West Hartford was the very upscale area where, among other people, Sam Clemens lived. And uh, what's her name? Uh, Isabella Beecher Hooker, uh, the sister of Henry Ward Beecher. She lived next door. And Charles Dudley Warner, who owned the newspaper, and all these other Hartford uh, bigwigs all lived together in West Hartford. All right. The first time we meet Puss Flanagan, we find out that she's a telephone operator, but we don't know how old she is. Later on in the book, in the 15th chapter, her age is given as 15. And now we find out that instead of living in East Hartford, Twain has moved her to West Hartford. <laughs> is this all by accident, or is there a reason for it? What do you think? Did he well, just slip up and find West when he met East? No, to raise her status to, you know, that in life or something. Huh? To raise her status in life, to move her to the West. West well, well, I don't think it's a possibility. I think there's a more direct possibility. Huh? Jerry? He's kind of trying to move above his station. Well, no, yeah. because we know from the originally she was from East Hartford, where she would belong. Right. right. Okay, now I'll give you another thing. Susie Clemens, his oldest daughter, was born in 1872. The novel was begun in 1886. He got to the 15th chapter sometime, probably early in 1887. How old is she in 1887? Her birthday was in March. Oh, 15. Fifteen. And in the 15th chapter, in the 15th chapter, we find out she's 15 years old. Yeah. Okay. And now we find out that she's from West Hartford. So it's Susie? You start writing about Ah! Oh, dear. Ah! Uh-huh. And I wonder what Susie said 
when she read this and <laughs> saw that her father had written them into the book. <laughs> and the thing about it is, the, there is no other possible explanation except that it was just uh, carelessness. And I just won't believe that. I, I just had a really quick question. I would, did, do we know if his daughter Susie ever worked as a telephone operator by any chance? I doubt it. No, she certainly never worked as a telephone <laughs> no, she operator. Wouldn't. As a matter of fact, uh, they, none of the Clevens girls ever worked. Oh, okay. I just, I just wondered if. Yeah, you know, okay. That was a well, Fourteen-year-old girls of uh, wealthy people did not, and high-status people did not work. In fact, even in their twenties, Susie would never have been allowed to work. Because the, the code of, the, of conduct for upper-class young women in the 19th century uh, prohibited them from having any kind of a job. Mm -hmm. They were supposed to get married and have children. So here we have what can be construed as a very subtle hint about what was in Samuel Clemens' mind at this point. And in my book, I, I carry out this hint with uh, support of 20 other pieces of evidence, all of which indicate, one way or another, that there was something more than an ordinary father-daughter relationship between Samuel Clemens and his daughter Susie. And I'm not the first one to say that. Uh, Charles Snyder, who was the editor of the second edition of, Auto of Plain's autobiography, and who also found, published, uh, found, edited, and published Susie's letters, and her writing is about her father, uh, suggested this in a book called Papa, uh, which is really kind of a biography of Susie Clemens. And it was published, I, th I think, in the late 80s. Uh, and it's fascinating reading. Susie Clemens deserves a, a book all by herself. A fascinating, fascinating person. Uh, George Warner, who was Charles Dudley Warner's brother and a friend of the Clemens family, said that Susie was the most interesting person of either sex that he ever met. And she, of all the Clemens children, she was the most like her father. She had his red hair, she had his temper, she had his wisdom, um, and she had a, a very passionate nature. Um, just fascinating to look at her pictures. She had eyes that were so penetrating and she, her pictures are now 100 and what, 140 years old? And they show this pair of unbelievably penetrating eyes, just even when she was a young girl. And she must have been incredibly striking as a, as a young woman. And then didn't, didn't she die when he went to Europe or something? He went to Europe? She died at the age of 24 of meningitis. Yeah. Uh, and he was in England at the time. Oh, that killed him practically. Yeah. Anyway, though, I have an enormous amount to say about this in the book, but any, in my book. All right, okay. so the Yankee, using his pistol, challenges all the other knights to come at him at one time because he's just vanquished Sir Lancelot and all the other knights, and he challenges them. He plays the gamble that he can dominate them all, and by surprise, about 500 knights get up on their horses and start coming at him. And he starts shooting one by one. He has 11 shots left in his two pistols. He's already used one to kill Sir Sagamore. And he knows that if he has to use the 11th bullet, the 12th knight is bound to kill him. So he's playing a desperate gamble. Uh, he shoots nine knights, and they back off. 
and he thinks this is just the top thing in the world. The march of civilization had begun, he said. Chivalry was doomed. What is civilization? What, what does the word civil come from? Well, well, certainly not shooting people down. To be civilized is not to be shooting people. Civilization, as uh, he uh, thinks of it, may be the 19th century's way of doing things. But is it civilized? What, what, you know, what just had occurred in America 20 years before he wrote this book? The Civil War. Uh-huh, which was anything but civil. Right. 700,000 people were killed in this American Civil War. Now, Arthurian England could not kill 700,000 people if they tried for 20 years. The, uh, the initiation of technology made mass killing possible. And later on in this book, we are going to discuss uh, one of the most horrific chapters anybody ever wrote, and especially in the 19th century. All right. So the Yankee civilization begins with killing off nine knights, immediately on edge as to what is this uh, so-called civilization. Is it worth anything? All right. Chapter 40. Three years later. Now that the knights have been defeated, he doesn't feel that secrecy is longer, any longer necessary, and he exposes his 19th century civilization that he's been building on the quiet and opens it up for inspection. And it is unbelievable. Uh, the 6th century sees steamboats, trains, telegraph, uh, all these advanced... Uh, technological marvels that the 6th century couldn't have even dreamed of. And that's the world that he reveals. And it was his schools and his uh, military academy and all, of, all the rest of it. Okay. For three years, the knights are intimidated, the church is intimidated, and the Yankee rides high. In the course of that three years, publishing starts. And Sir Dinadan the humorist, who he hasn't been able to stand since he first met him when he first came to Camelot, publishes a joke book. What does the Yankee, as the boss, do? He suppresses the book because he hates all the old jokes. He's heard them all before. And he hangs the author. Can you remember somebody who hangs a bunch of musicians in Chapter 17? Oh, yeah. Who was it? Morgan Le Fay. Sister. Morgan hangs uh, the musicians in Chapter 17 with Hank Morgan's permission, by the way, and Morgan himself hangs Sir Dinadan in Chapter 40. 40, yeah. What kind of a person is the boss? Pardon me? Is he a nice person? No. Well, not right now, no. Not ever in this book. Try to you know, characterize some of the things that you've read about him. He loves to show off in any way possible. He shows off by doing uh, his technological miracles, blowing up Merlin's Tower, uh, cleaning out the well. Remember the well with the, with the Valley of Holiness? When he puts on a show with colored light and fires and uh, uh, mispronounced German, uh, long German words and makes a show out of it. He loves putting on, he calls it his putting on an effect. Okay, he loves to show off. 
Number two, he shows off with money. He humiliates Dowley the blacksmith in uh, the second part of the book. Dowley is supposed to be wealth, wealthy, and the boss, who of course is infinitely wealthier, uh, just humiliates him, shows him up. And then doesn't feel sorry for him. He says, I wouldn't have been him for anything in the world. But he never thinks of the fact that he was the one who made him feel bad. <laughs> he has very little, if any, feelings for anybody else. He's selfish. He's also power hungry. What does he dream about in this chapter? He dreams that someday, when Arthur dies, he will start a republic with Hank Morgan as the first president. He's power hungry. He's also money grubbing. How about the story about the, uh, the monk who was bowing and praying and bowing and praying on top of a tower? And this was in the, the, the last section, when we read the last time. And Morgan hooks the monk up to a sewing machine. And for five years, the monk is bowing and praying and bowing and praying and turning the sewing machine while he's doing it. <laughs> and Morgan takes the shirts and sells them for a dollar and a half a piece. And then when he sees that the monk is getting old and might die soon, he sells the operation to a group of investors, walks off with the money, and when the, uh, the monk dies the next year, the, the investors are stuck with the loss. Okay. Wow. This is all in the book. I'm not making any of it up. Wasn't he good when he wanted a better civilization for them? The no slave, no serfdom, and wasn't wasn't that good? I think what I put my call. What did he call the freemen of uh, that he encountered? They were slaves in every way, without except the name. Yeah, that's true. And what society is the whole book attacking? It's a satire. Remember what a satire is? An attack on some person, object, idea, using an indirect object. The indirect object is Arthur's England. The real object is Chester Arthur's America. Oh, that's right. Yeah. What does he do with the knights? He says he wants to keep the knights out of trouble. What does he do with them? Some of them he gives jobs on the railroad running the, the passenger trains. There wasn't a passenger conductor on the line with a rank lower than an earl. And the conductor of the 433 Express was a duke. There was only two, two problems with them as conductors. One was that they wouldn't take off their armor. <laughs> and the second was that they knocked down fares. You know what it means to knock down fares? They kept the money and didn't give it to the company. <laughs> All right. But that's only a few jobs for knights. What does he do with the other knights? And we see this several times in the book. He turns them into advertising billboards. They wander around the country selling soap by billboards. And he turns them in this chapter into traveling salesmen. Yeah. Let me read you the passage. There was hardly a knight in all the land who wasn't in some useful employment. Uh, they went clothed in steel and equipped with a sword and a lance and a battle axe. And if they couldn't persuade a person to buy a sewing machine on the installment plan or a melodeon or a barbed wire fence or a prohibition journal or any of the other thousand and one things they canvassed for, they removed him and passed on. The American salesman of the 19th century didn't have the ability to kill off uh, the people who didn't buy from him, 
but high-pressure sales tactics were certainly not unknown. Books were sold door-to-door by high-pressure salesmen. Yeah. He started out in subscription publishing. This is deadly stuff, and yeah. you can't possibly miss it if you're thinking. This well, is and this I think a- that's why we all felt disappointed, because he's sort of creating an America, which yeah. was, uh, he's creating a world that was less nice than the world he came into back then. Uh, it certainly wasn't any better. Right. And that, I think, this right here, you put your finger on what the whole book is about. Um uh, and we've mentioned some of the connections already. Morgan Le Fay and Hank Morgan. Thirteen centuries between Morgan Le Fay and Hank Morgan. Is the society that Hank Morgan thinks is so much better actually any better than the society of uh, Morgan Le Fay? In the days of Camelot, you had superstition, sure. Mm-hmm. You had uh, lack of technology of all kinds. Sure. Uh, you had... Uh, fighting, whatever. Uh, you had a established church, and you had a nobility, and servile people. Okay? What do you have in the 19th century? Instead of an established church and a nobility, people worship money. They're still worshiping a false idol either way. Yeah, And you have all the same problems that you had. People are not any better to each other. Hank Morgan is just as likely or just as uh, happy hanging people and shooting people as Morgan Le Fay could be. And uh, the, the 19th century society is technologically improved and has a lot of good things as a result of technology, but also it has a uh, ability to kill wholesale that no society up until then had. Arthur's society, they kill each other one by one. In Morgan society, he kills 25,000 knights at one time. Do you, do you think, or, or does anyone think that since, since this society that he was, although he was satirizing it, it would have seemed normal, I mean, the America that he was making fun of would have seemed normal to most of his readers, wouldn't some of the irony have been lost? Well, the point, of course, was that the, it's a satire, but if you don't see the satire, you go out and, uh, and you read the book and you don't even know what you're reading. Right. That's, that's what I was wondering. And it, that's exactly what has happened with this book. People have misread it and not read it and not understood it for 125 years. Still don't get it. Now, when you put it this way, when you see that all the things that Morgan is, uh, think is, thinks are better are not really any better, that man has not changed in the 13th centuries between Morgan Le Fay and the 19th century, and that man probably will never change, the nature of man never changes, going all the way back to Cain and Abel uh, and Adam and Eve. What Mark Twain calls the damned human race is the subject of this book. The ultimate subject of the book is this crazy character man who is capable of the greatest good and the greatest evil sometimes at the same time. And the question of the 19th century, the, the Victorians of the 19th century said, uh, believed that they had made such progress with their technological society that the, the perfect world was on the way. And it was only a matter of time until all the problems were solved and everybody would live happily ever after. And Mark Twain saw it that this was a fraud. He, he was smart enough to see into the future. And he realized, remember I talked to Huckleberry Finn about how he found 
the possibility of a moral absence in the universe, that there was no right or wrong. Same thing right. is true in the Connecticut Yankee, only more so. Morgan thinks he's doing right by bringing the 19th century to the 6th, and actually he's doing wrong. Just as Huckleberry Finn thought he was wrong to steal Jim out of slavery, and he was actually doing right. How do we know what's right and wrong? What standards do we have we can judge our conduct by? And the answer was to Mark Twain, we can't know. There is no morality in the universe. It's a black hole where there should be a universal moral standard. There is no universal moral standard. And that is a terrifying thought. In effect, what Mark Twain did in the 19th century, in 1889, was to anticipate the whole of post-World War I literature, all of which is heavily concerned with the question of where was God? World War I shattered the confidence that everybody in the world, in the Western world, had had in the advance of society in the Victorian era. Tremendous disillusionment. That's what it's famous for. And yet, Mark Twain saw that 25 years before World War I began. He was writing about the terrible disillusionment that he suffers. And in the, the next to last chapter, when the Republic fails, and uh, the people all rally behind the remaining knights of the church, and he calls them every name under the sun, and he calls himself a donkey. What is a donkey a euphemism for? An ass. Absolutely. He realizes at the very end what an ass he's been. It's terribly disillusioning. Yeah. And, it, and he did it years, years before, generations before the 20th century writers uh, honed in on the question of where was God and the death of God. That's one reason I say that Mark Twain was a much greater writer than people believe, than people realize. And The Connecticut Yankee is one of the books in which most clearly shows it. It's not his masterpiece. Huckleberry Finn is a much better book. But it's similar to Huck Finn. They're brothers, if not twins. And the techniques used are similar, although the skill level of Huckleberry Finn is a lot greater because he spent much more time working on it. Uh, he spent a whole year after he finished the manuscript just cleaning it up and, and taught, tightening it up and, and making it better. He didn't spend a, a week on the Connecticut Yankee. He finished it and he sent the manuscript off as it was. And we'll see an example of what that caused as we go on here a little bit further. All right, so uh, is, the, is the book starting to make sense now? Yes, it is. Thank you. Yes, yes it is. Uh, it's, a, it's a marvelous book. Not, a great, not as great as Huckleberry Finn, but incredibly thought-provoking for the 19th century especially. And not only that, it's it got great passages in it, just some, some tremendously funny stuff and some tremendously disillusioning stuff. All right, chapter 40 is in three sections. So far we've talked about the first section. Uh, the Yankee exposes the civilization. In the second section we hear about his plan to disestablish the church and create a republic after the death of Arthur. And we also learn his own age, 40, and he admits to uh, wanting to be the first president himself. 
Now, what word does he use when he says that he uh, felt an, an urge to be the first president of the republic? I can't believe that this, uh, that this is by accident. He uses the word hankering. I had a hankering to be the first president. Hankering. Knowing what his name is and what Hank means, yeah. can't be an accident. Simply can't. I can't believe it could be an accident. All right. Also in the second section, Clarence uh, comes up with the idea of a hereditary monarch with a republican government. Right? Where the king is uh, the head of the government, but uh, the state, rather, head of the state, but not the head of government. Okay. What country has that exact system today? England. Absolutely. And a number of others, but England is the most prime, the prime example. Yeah. At the time Twain wrote this, it wasn't true. The, the monarch still had power when he wrote the book in 1889. But in the, in the years immediately after his death, 1911, the year after he died, um, the long process of making the king a, a, a figurehead, but not the actual monarch, not the ruling monarch, in the sense that he reigns but does not rule, or the queen as it is today. Uh, England became, in other words, exactly what Clarence envisions, except Clarence envisioned it through Mark Twain in 1889. It didn't come true for another 25 years or more. All right. Now, Clarence goes one step further. The boss challenges him. He says, well, anytime you got a king, he's dangerous. Clarence says, all right, then. Instead of a royal family of people, why not a royal family of cats? Okay. It's, <laughs> there's no way you could have missed it. it. It's just absolutely hilarious. I remember um, that line. Right. Clarence was with me as concerned the revolution, but in a modified way. His idea was a republic without privileged orders with a hereditary royal family at the head instead of an elected chief magistrate. He believed that no nation that had ever known the joy of worshipping a royal family could ever be robbed of it and not fade away. I urged the kings were dangerous, he said then. Have cats. He was sure that a royal family of cats would answer every purpose. They would be as useful as any other royal family. They would know as much. They would have the same virtues and the same treacheries, the same disposition to get up shindies with other royal cats. They would be laughably vain and absurd and never know it. They would be wholly inexpensive. And finally, they would have a sound as divine of right as any other royal house. Tom the Seventh, by the grace of God King, Tom the Fourteenth, would sound just as well as it would when applied to the ordinary royal tomcat with tights on. And as a rule, said Clarence in his neat modern English, the character of these cats would be considerably above the character of the average king. <laughs> Within 40 years, uh, all Europe could be governed by cats, which would be furnished by our family. The reign of universal peace would then begin to end no more forever. <laughs> I submit to you people that this is genius at work. It is. Yeah. Not, not only does he come up with a good idea, but the way he presents it is just absolutely hilarious. And, of course, what he's doing is saying, uh, what's a monarch worth? What are the average king like? Not a cat would be better. <laughs> so, anyway, there, that's the, side of the uh, second section. The third section of this chapter comes the great plot error. 
right after that paragraph ending with the meow, <laughs> Sandy came flying in at that moment, wild with terror, and so choked with sobs that for a minute she could not get her voice. I ran and took her in my arms and lavished caresses on her and said, Speak, darling, beseechingly. Speak, what is it? Her head fell limp on my bosom, and she gasped almost inaudibly, Hello, Central. But this is not Puss Flanagan. No. This is, this is a completely uncharacteristic plot error. So the only time Twain ever did something like this that I know of. Huh. We don't know that uh, what's happened to Sandy. She dropped out of the story in Chapter 24. And we haven't yeah. seen her for 16 yeah. chapters. And all of a sudden she rushes in and says, Hello, Central. Well, Hello, Central is the baby that they've had, but we don't know that they've even been married, let alone had a baby. That's explained only in the next chapter. So if you, were, you think that the last part of the book is confusing, this sure doesn't help. Well, you've got the story completely out of sequence. Could it have been a flashback, like he's just thinking of... No, it's not. It's, it's a mistake. Oh, boy. Okay. It's a, it's a glaring mistake. Now, I don't know how he did it, hmm. but anyway, all of a sudden we have Hello Central as a child and she's sick. Hmm. Now, how did she get her name? Because Sandy, his girlfriend, who becomes his wife, and though, though she's, we didn't know that she's his wife yet, uh is listening to him lying in bed and mumbling, hello, Central, hello, Central. And she thinks it's his old girlfriend. So she names uh -huh. the baby, hello, Central. We don't find all that out until the next chapter. Oh. So this is just completely weird. Mm -hmm. It comes out of nowhere, and it makes no sense. Could it have been, could, could those chapters have been placed in the wrong place, mixed up? It can't, the way it's written now. The events of the next chapter follow it. Okay. okay. First part of the next chapter should be in front of this, but it isn't. Okay. And it's one of the things that makes the book so terribly confusing and difficult to read. What's happened to the round table now that the knights are no longer in the uh, knight errantry trade? The round table has become a stock exchange. Along comes Sir Lancelot and his richest armor striding along the hall on the way to the stock board. He was the president and occupied the Siege Perilous, which he had bought from Sir Galahad. For the stock board now consisted of the Knights of the Round Table, and they used it for business purposes. Seats were worth, well, you would never believe the figure, so I won't state it. Lancelot was a bear, and he had just cornered one of the new railroad lines and was getting ready to squeeze the shorts. But what of that? The stock market, he walks the bear down the market. hall on the way to squeeze the uh, the other knights. You know what a short, uh, short means? Yeah, sure. I have to explain I'll have to explain that in a minute. Uh, but Lancelot, hearing that the baby is sick, comes in, throws his helmet into the corner, and for three days and nights helps nurse the baby. Oh, wow. Lancelot has that wonderful quality, true nobility. Lancelot has it. The boss doesn't have it. Lancelot has it, and Arthur has it. What does, what's Twain's definition of true nobility? He never states it, but you can easily pick it up from, from his books. That's what uh, Huck does, what Jim does. Honor. They have honor. They're, you know, they know. No, it's not honor. They are willing to sacrifice something of value to them with no expectation of gain for the sake of somebody else.
Oh. Arthur goes into the smallpox hut and carries the dying voices, girl down to, the, to her it's mother, mm-hmm. even though he might be risking his life by doing it. Huck Finn vows to steal Jim out of slavery, even though even. he may go to hell, and he thinks he will go to hell for doing it. Okay. Uh, Roxy, in, in putting Ned Wilson, allows herself to be sold into slavery to save her son. Characters who give up something precious to themselves, with no expectation of gain, for the sake of helping somebody else. That's a truly noble character. And there are more, not more than a handful of them in all of Twain's writing. And Tom Sawyer and uh, Hank Morgan are notably not among them. <laughs> no, they're not. They are selfish. Yeah. Uh, it's the opposite of selfishness. It's generosity without expecting any return at a cost. It goes even further than that. It's not just doing something for somebody else. It's doing something that will cost you something and expect no return and do it for somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's true nobility. Now, man is capable of true nobility, but he's also capable of Morgan Le Fay and Hank Morgan, shooting people and hanging people and the swindling people. What's the book all about? Is one society better than another? No. No? Why not? Very few people are basically good. Well, go on. Go on. And evil. Very people are capable of being very, very good or very amazingly evil good, at the same time. but also amazingly evil, mm-hmm. and sometimes at the same time. Right. The lesson that Mark Twain is teaching in this book and that he taught in Huckleberry Finn is that people don't change. The, the human race is damned. And he calls it the damned human race. He said it sometime that man is the only animal that blushes and the only one who needs to. <laughs> His view of humanity became quite dark. And this didn't happen early in his life, although he had uh, you know, feelings about it early in his life. But after he turned uh, 50 or so, uh, he got more and more pessimistic about the nature of man and about good and evil and guilt. But what I'm showing here is how it's in the book in Connecticut right. Yankee. It's right there, but people go right over it and never see it. No, we don't. Never see it. All right. Uh, then the last part of this section is comic relief. Uh, what happens? The doctors tell the boss and Sandy that they have to take the child away for a sea voyage so she'll get better. So they take a ship and they go off and went a cruising for a couple of weeks and then they go to France and they stop there for a while and at the end of a month uh, he sends the ship home for fresh supplies and for news. We expected to ship back in three or four days and she would bring me along with the other news the result of an experiment which I had been starting. A project to replace the tournaments, the knights running at each other, right? What are they going to replace them with? Baseball. Exactly. Baseball, yeah. And all wow. the players are knights in armor, and they never have to uh, worry about a, a ball hitting them. <laughs> it just bounces off. <laughs> it's just uh, it's wonderful. All right, that's the end of Chapter 40, whatever it was, 40. 41 is called The Interdict. It starts with some other completely different topic, and this is his, the wife and child.
Now, listen to this. Ah, Sandy, what a right heart she had, what simple, how simple and genuine and how good she was. She was a flawless wife and mother. And yet I had married her for no particular reason, except that by the customs of chivalry, she was my property until some knight took her away from me. She had hunted Britain all before me, found me at the hanging bout outside of London, and straightway resumed her old place at my side, in the placidest way and as of right. I was a New Englander, in my opinion, this sort of partnership would compromise her sooner or later. She couldn't see how, but I cut the argument short and we had a wedding. Now, I didn't know I was drawing a prize, yet that was what I did draw. Within a year, I became her worshiper, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Could this be, could this be Mark Twain writing about Samuel Clemens' own marriage? Yeah, it could be. Yes, it could. Remember, he married an heiress. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, it's very, very plausible that he married her because, well, he liked her, but he really may have married her partly because of the fact that her family had connections and her father was a millionaire. And the marriage made him. It's absolutely uh, possible. There's no evidence to prove it. Obviously, he wasn't leaving any writing about it. If he did think of her as the prize, and he did call the wooing of, of, of Olivia Langdon the, the siege of Elmira, he laid siege to, to a, her home in Elmira for two years to get her to marry him. Right. And her mother opposed it even to, up until the day of the wedding. He was, he was a living contradiction. A whole set of living paradoxes. All right, so he may here have been describing his own marriage. Then we get to uh, the fact that, you know, Hello Central starts getting better, and we hear how Hello Central got her name. Um, I didn't laugh. I was always thankful for that. But the strain ruptured every cartilage in me, and for weeks afterwards, I could hear my bones quack when I walked. She never found out her mistake. The first time she heard that form of salute used at the telephone, Hello Central, she was surprised and not pleased. But I told her I had ordered it. Now, henceforth and forever, the telephone must always be invoked with that reverent formality in honor and remembrance of my lost friend and her little namesake. This was not true, but it answered. Okay, now we get to the action of the chapter, which is very brief. It only runs to about four, three or four pages. Uh, the ship hasn't come back. It's been two weeks. And uh, what, what happened to the ship? Was there a uh, catastrophe, an invasion, an earthquake, a pestilence? Had the nation been swept out of existence? But guessing was profitless, I must go at once. So I borrowed a ship no bigger than a steam launch from the local king, and was soon ready to go, and they said goodbye to uh, each other. And I approached England the next morning, and the place is like death. He lands at Canterbury. The streets were empty. There was not even a priest in sight, and no bells were ringing. The mournfulness of death was everywhere. I couldn't understand it. At last, at the further end of the town, I saw a small funeral procession, just a family and a few friends following a coffin. No priest, a funeral without bell, book, or candle. There was a church there, but they didn't go into it. I glanced up at the belfry, and there hung the bell shrouded in black and its tongue tied back. Now I knew. I understood the stupendous calamity that had overtaken England. Invasion? Invasion is a triviality to it. It was the interdict. The church had struck. Uh, he goes to Camelot. He thought he would take the train, but, there was, of course, the trains weren't running. 
the station was as vacant as a cavern, so he walks to Camelot in disguise. And far from being the best electric ride in town in the kingdom, he arrives at night and sees nothing, completely dark, simply a blot in the darkness. And he goes up to the castle, and the drawbridge is down. He walks right in, and nobody bothers him. Chapter 42 is next. We're going to hold right there uh, until next time, and we will all read these chapters. Would that be I okay with you? I thought this was going to be short tonight. It turned out to be long. I know. No, but you're, you're so fascinating, and you really yeah. make us think, and we thank you. Okay. Any other comments or questions from anyone before we go? No? Yeah, I was We're just going to say, say thank you, and I will uh, reread the chapters. It's been about six months for me, so my yeah, mind is blown. Okay, yeah, it's always a good idea to reread it before we do one of these. I will, I promise, and we'll get, we'll call you and set up a time. Okay. Thank you, Iris. Okay. Bye. Good night, you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you.